Let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. What a blessed time we've had studying this wonderful chapter during this season. Today we finally get to zero in on the correct answer to the Advent, the kind of response to which God summons us in response to the truth of Christ born, His life, His death, His resurrection, and His coming. This is the response of the Magi, the wise men from the East, called by God through providence, through miracles, even called by God in Scripture as they come to know truth and the prophecy. And we discover they also had received the effectual calling of God because the evidence is of that regeneration is in true, authentic worship of Jesus. Let me read to you the chapter, and we'll jump into our study. The Magi are indeed the focus of the first half of this chapter, so I want to read you the whole story again, the first 12 verses of Matthew 2. Follow along as I read aloud. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, "'Where is he who has been born king of the Jews?' We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned, warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is the Word of God. Clovis was the first king of France. He was a young man, very young man, was a ruler in a small tribe of Gauls in what we know as France now, but eventually through a lot of warfare and some negotiations, he united most of the Gaulish tribes and moved his capital to Paris, which is even today the capital of France. Sort of sounds like King Kamehameha, right? Well, also like King Kamehameha, he had a Christian wife. He was not a Christian. In fact, he was known for his persecution of Christians. He would oftentimes be found burning Christians or burning their belongings or their churches he was a man who did not like Christianity. He was a pagan like most kings of that era. Well, there was a troubling time in his life, and he was sort of grappling with life, grappling with reality, and he 
decided he needed to learn a little more about this Christian God, this Messiah, this Jesus of Nazareth. And so, in order to understand the gospel, in order to understand Christianity, he went to the local chapel and went into the priest. Happened to be December 25th. The year was 496. The priest explained to him Christ. He explained to him the gospel. And he concluded his explanation by saying to King Clovis, worship what you once burned and burn what you once worshiped. The essence of salvation is indeed worship, right? I'm not talking about just singing songs, though it would include singing. I'm talking about worshiping God with all that you are, your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The essence of salvation, namely faith in Christ and repentance, that this is the essence of surrender. This is the essence of salvation. It is destroying your idols in order to follow Jesus. It is in following Jesus and self-denial. It is crucifixion of the old man, the old self, and pursuing Jesus Christ. This is why Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ, therefore I no longer live. Jesus Christ now lives in me. I read a few moments ago the tail end of the story of the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. Jesus says the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Truth being the truth conveyed to us in the Word of God, spirit being the spirit having regenerated someone's heart to, to cause them, to compel them to obey Christ, to follow after Him and worship God. So just to give you a couple of uh, uh, points about the order of salvation, especially from our perspective, God sends His Spirit to you. He convicts you of your sin. He opens your eyes to the real meaning of the gospel, not just the, the facts of the gospel, but the meaning of gospel to your heart, and then enables you and compels you to follow in faith and in repentance. That's the effectual calling of God. You repent, you surrender, that transaction happens, you are now justified before God, you stand before Him justified, having the righteousness of Christ as your covering, not anything that you've done, having your sins atoned for. That activity, compelled by the Holy Spirit, is your first biblical holy act of worship, right? It's the first action you take, that that move to belief and then repentance, that is your first act of worship. And then the rest of your life, the, the rest of your life is an act of worship. It's, a, it's something that you've consecrated to God, everything you do. And, and really, the rest of your life is, is trying to figure out how to worship God in every circumstance in life, in every context that you are, whether it's at work or at school, as a husband or wife or a child. From that moment forth, you are in worship of God. And then finally, when God glorifies you and changes you, you are then able to fully worship God with everything that you are. It's what every Christian looks forward to. It really is the purpose for which God created humans. This is what we were created for, to worship God. This is God's purpose for humans. Think about my dog, my, my Labrador Retriever. You can use my dog as a pillow. My wife does this all the time, uses the lab as a pillow. But that dog is much happier 
running around outside fetching dead ducks for you out of cold, icy waters. Unfortunately, he doesn't get to do that here. That's what he was bred for. That's what they genetically, you know, put these dogs together and bred them in a certain way so that this is what he would be happy doing, retrieving things and bringing them back to you and serving his master. You know, humans find their greatest joy. Humans find their greatest happiness. Humans find the greatest fulfillment when they finally come to this point of faith and repentance. This is what we are created for, to worship God. And this is the essence of salvation, meaning this is the reason that Matthew wrote this chapter in this book is to cause us to worship Christ. So the Spirit would use these truths and, and enable, through these truths, enable in our hearts a, a desire to have genuine faith, repent, and worship Christ. And the response, the response should be the response that we see of Mary, Joseph, the shepherds, and of that of the Magi. Well, we've learned so far that even though these truths come to people, even though the truths come to people in terms of providence, even in terms of miraculous, even in terms of scripture, when these truths come to people, they don't always respond in the same way. And we learned that indeed some hatefully reject that call. That's what we saw in King Herod, right? After giving a little bit of an introduction, we, we saw uh, the second week, we saw Herod's response, this hateful rejection of Christ. He was a vicious man. He was easily threatened. He was e easily provoked. He was murderous, and so he killed off many hundreds, if not thousands, of young children. By the way, I'm going to point this out. One of the reasons that Herod had all boys killed two and under is because this story did not happen at the time that Jesus was immediately born, right? And we, we, we learn, first of all, that Mary and Joseph had moved from the manger into a home, but uh, Joseph was evidently setting up shop there. I mean, he, he, I guess he just supposed, well, I guess I'll stay here. There's family here. We've, we've moved to Bethlehem. We've had the baby, and, and perhaps we'll just stay here, and, and I'll work here. So they're living in a home, and, and that's where the wise men come. I know a lot of you have these creches. We have them, uh, one sitting on our mantle home, and we have a creche there, and there's uh, the manger, and above the manger, there's a star, and there's, you know, the, the Jesus and Mary and Joseph and some animals, and there's usually a little drummer boy thrown in for good measure, maybe even a, someone playing the flute, and there's always the wise men there as though they were there at the time of Christ's birth. Well, they weren't. There's nothing wrong to have your crush. I'm guessing this one probably has wise men in front of it too. There's nothing wrong to have that as a representation of Christ's arrival on earth. But you understand that this happened probably at least a year, maybe even two years later, again, going off Herod's math here. And the wise men arrived. The boy was a young boy, probably a year or two old at that point, and Herod, a vicious man, slaughtered all these boys two years and under. We learned that this reminds us of that similar dark time, that picture of Rachel bidding a forever farewell to her children as they go off to Egypt, never to see them again. And Matthew uses that tragic image from Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah using that image as well to contrast it with the joy of the new covenant. Now, what a great lesson for us, even against the backdrop of hatred of Christ. Well, if anyone should have understood this, it would have been the spiritual leaders, the chief priests, the scribes. We learned this last week, those offices had been corrupted, they had been 
demented. The truth had been corrupted. For these men who should have been joyfully welcoming the Messiah, they were completely indifferent to the Messiah. We see this wonderful shepherd king born, the the son of David, finally be born right where he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. They know it, and they're completely apathetic about the whole thing. They're indifferent. We find underneath that indifference, even undetected, probably by their own minds, there's a heart of truly satanic malice. That indifference would turn into hate. That hate would turn into actual activity and plots in order to get Jesus killed. They eventually commit the worst evil ever, or worse even than what Herod had committed by killing all those boys. They killed the Son of God. They framed and executed Him on a Roman cross. And of course, God uses that evil to atone for sin, a demonstration of Christ's power over sin and death and the resurrection, God's approval of the atonement. Well, today we're blessed to inspect that final response, really the response to which Matthew wants us to focus our attention on. Some people openly hate Christ and some are indifferent to the advent. Some obey the call. They answer the advent in obedience, and they worship Jesus. This, of course, is a response of the wise men, the magi. And I want to lay out this text by answering three questions, or four questions, that is, that you may have regarding the magi, three questions, that is, you have regarding the magi. One is, who are the magi? Who are these people? Why is it such a big deal? Another question is, why the Magi? Why not someone else? There were other kings, Herod himself. Why didn't God regenerate him? Why didn't God call him? Why the Magi? And then how or what did the Magi do in response to understanding this? So let's look at these things. Number one, who are the Magi? The ESV says wise men. The word is magoi or magi. Who are these fellows? What were these fellows? Some of you remember that song, We Three Kings of Orient. Are these people actually kings? Were they, there are three of them? No, on both accounts. Who are they? Well, the magoi most likely is an ancient tribe from the far side or the very eastern edges of the Middle East. This tribe dates back to several hundred years before them, the time of the Medes and Persians. Some people say, and they have pretty good evidence of it, that this could go back there. This tribe of of astrologers goes back even all the way to the time of of Abraham, a very ancient group of people, and, and people throughout history had revered and respected this tribe. This group had been around for a long, long time. They were seen as a, a very important group well-known in that part of the world. And they were uh, really a a strongly religious group of people, but they were not religious in the way that you and I would think of it or the people were in those days worshiping their different gods. These were astrologers. And they're not astronomers. They weren't just inspecting and detailing the heavens. They were looking at the heavens. They were detailing the heavens, and then they were interpreting it through religious lenses. They were looking to the sky for spiritual and cosmic meaning. No, they were not Christians historically. They were not believers. They were pagans 
And though they did not worship the, the common gods of the day, they, they tried to map it all out in astrology. They tried to predict the future using the sky. Common descendant of this pagan practice is, of course, what you see in the newspaper every day, and that is your horoscope, right? Let's look to the sky and make some general comments that everyone can say, oh, I can see that. And as time goes on, these men got really good at doing this and gained a lot of respect. They had all kinds of superstitions, again, much of them revolving around what happened in the heavens. And it's why the word magic or magician comes from this word magi. This is what they employed themselves with. And kings throughout the region, throughout history, sought their advice, sought their directives, sought their um, foresight. They wanted the magoi around. They wanted the magi to protect them. They wanted the magi to interpret dreams. They wanted the magi to tell them what's going to happen with their kingdom, if it was going to carry on for some time. And so these people, this tribe was given prominent roles in government. They were not kings, but they were prominent in government, high in political favor, high in political power. They were even called by some people in those days kingmakers because they could foresee the future or ostensibly foresee the future, and they could tell you who was going to be the next king. The first time we actually hear about this group of people is not here in Matthew, but back in the book of Daniel. You probably remember Daniel confounding the king's magicians. Sometimes it's, that's the word that's used, magicians. Well, this is the Magoi. This is the Magi. Again, these people are not Yahweh followers. They're following pagan practices of looking to the skies. And Daniel confounded them because they could not interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream, but he could. Now, just a note here, we're not told that these particular magi here had any kind of connection other than sort of a historic connection with the people in those time of Daniel. And sometimes people have drawn a little too strong of a, a connection as though Daniel witnessed to these people, gave them the gospel, and, you know, throughout history, this group of magi hung on to the gospel, and that's why they were looking for the Messiah. Well, I just don't think that's true, and the main reason is Matthew doesn't point it out. Matthew loves to point out prophecies coming true. He loves to point out the, the Old Testament connection. He makes no such connection here. I think they are connected because the Magi have been around, but he doesn't make some kind of spiritual connection or sort of a scriptural connection. All we know about these people is they were carrying on in their pagan ways. God spoke to them. He revealed Himself to them, and they heard that truth, and compelled by the Holy Spirit, they responded to that truth by worshiping Christ. They were regenerated. They, this truth came to them directly from God. The truth that we would see in Scripture later on, this truth came to them, was revealed to them by God. God's Spirit compelled them to believe in it and to worship Christ, and they obeyed. This is the work of a Holy Spirit, of the Holy Spirit. Not just general calling, not just scriptural calling, but a special revelation given to their hearts perhaps even through a dream, as we see happen later with them. This is the effectual calling, as we talked about last week. It says there that they brought three gifts, down in verse 11. Doesn't mean there were three wise men. You probably know this already. Most of your creches will have three wise men. 
In fact, they probably would have had a giant entourage. There may have been many of them operating on different levels. It's probably why when they came to Jerusalem, it troubled not just Herod, but all of Israel. And I don't think three guys on camels would trouble anybody. So they probably brought a giant entourage of people with all kinds of animals, and they probably were dressed funny. They probably had come a long way, and people knew by reputation who they were, maybe had never seen them before, but understood that they existed. They knew perhaps that they were kingmakers. This is why Herod and all Jerusalem were troubled. Well, this group of kingmakers is the group that God saved. This is whom God called. And this is a, at this point, you sort of wonder, like, why would God do this? I mean, why would God involve this ancient tribe? Why would He bring these people from, you know, the, the, the edges of the Middle East, probably as far as anyone uh, living in Israel even knew about? They would not have known about the Far East. They would have known about the far extent of the Middle East. And, and, and here He's bringing these strange people. Maybe they were different color. They were different religions. They were different uh, history. They, they looked different. They dressed different. Their customs were different. And, and God is bringing these people to Israel to worship Jesus. Why would God bring these people who are far off, save them, and have them worshiping Christ here in Matthew 2? So this is the second question, why the Magi? Well, the answer lies in really throughout the Old Testament, and as you read in the New Testament, especially the book of Hebrews, Romans as well. When Christ came, and Christ speaks of this often, when Christ came, there was a major shift taking place regarding the way people were to worship God. The old covenant was becoming obsolete, according to the words of Hebrews. And people were no longer to worship God, as Jesus said to the lady at the well. People were going to worship God not in one single place in Jerusalem. The worship of God would take place all over the world in all cultures. Now, just to remind you, several years ago when we began the book of Matthew, we learned that Matthew's gospel, his first audience is Jews. Now, this is not his only audience, but certainly it was, this is what was written for Jewish people from a Jewish perspective. And that's why and one reason why Matthew was intent on quoting Old Testament prophecies to remind them this is all according to God's great plan. And Matthew wanted to know, wanted them to know, and Jesus wanted people to know that a great shift in salvation history was happening from the old covenant to the new covenant. There was a great shift happening. And here in the new covenant, God would reveal in a greater way, though it was revealed in the Old Testament, God would reveal in a greater way His passion for the whole world. You see, though there were exceptions, the way you would become a follower of Yahweh in the Old Testament is that you would become a Jew. You had been a proselyte Jew. You couldn't become an ethnic Jew, but you'd become a proselyte Jew. You'd go through rituals and a process, go through the sign of salvation, and, and, and you would join the people of Israel. Remember a few weeks ago we talked about Herod and his, his ancestors. Some of his ancestors did this. This is why he had interest. Now, he, didn't, he wasn't a believer. He didn't follow God. That's why he had to ask people about the Messiah. But he was interested in this thing because his ancestors did this. His family had done this. They had become well, they were, not, they were Edomite. They weren't Jewish. They had become Jews through this process. 
And this was the filter. This is the way that you became a Yahweh follower in the Old Testament. You you followed the the, the law. Now, you were saved the same way. You were saved by faith in the coming Messiah, in the atoning work of God. You were saved in the exact same way, but in terms of worship, in terms of identification, you would become a Jew. You would travel to Jerusalem. You would worship God at the temple. You would go through this process, these, these atoning sacrifices being made for you that represented the coming atoning sacrifice of the Messiah. Another way you could say it is in the Old Testament, God mediated His truth, His Word, His worship, His revelation through a specific country, a specific people, the Israelites. He taught them how to worship. He had them create a place of worship there in Jerusalem at the temple. And He taught them the hope to which they should look to. And more than all of that, he pictured that through them there would be blessing for the whole earth, and through them would come the Messiah. Again, people were still saved by grace. Salvation has not changed. God's offer and God's uh, template of salvation did not change at all in the new covenant. But there was this massive shift in, in terms of worship, in terms of Israel. There was this massive shift from Israel to the world. Sometimes people are confused about the Old Testament. I say that because people are confused about the Old Testament. Sometimes they look at Old Testament and see the rules, and they say, well, in the Old Testament, you're saved by works. No, not true. You're saved by faith through grace. That's how you're saved. In the Old Testament and in the New, salvation is exactly the same. But there's this major salvation, redemptive history shift that's taking place. And so when Matthew is writing, the Christian Jews, and we know this in the early parts, especially of Acts, especially the book of Galatians, the Christian Jews struggled to accept this shift, that becoming a follower of Yahweh was no longer about becoming a Jew, it was about believing truth. They would have been tempted to say something like this, well, Jesus, He's our Messiah. And in order to worship our Messiah, you must do all those things of the old, you must become a Jew. You must submit yourself to our customs, to our feasts, to our laws, to our rules that we grew up on, and then, like us, you can then become a Christian. It would have been tempted to say, following the Messiah is a Jewish thing. You won't understand until you become a Jew. Of course, again, we learned this was a major struggle in that early church, and Matthew's doing his part to dispel this thought. Matthew's gospel is showing us, even here at the beginning, that Gentiles are being called to nest in the gospel, to believe in the gospel, and they would be, as Jesus said, they would worship God all over the world. It was never about becoming a Jew or doing the rituals. Famously, David in Psalm 51 talks about this. That is not the act of rituals that saves a person, those things are only meaningful when a person is submitting to God. It's a broken heart, a contrite heart that God looks for. Again, salvation was the same in the Old Testament, but there is this shift in redemptive history marked by the arrival of Christ, His atonement, and therefore the establishment at the cross of the new covenant. There would no longer be the need to become an Israelite. There would no longer be the need to travel and worship in the context of Israel and the, 
and, and, and the civil and the, the ceremonial process there. This could happen anywhere all over the earth. You, you learn about this even as you read the Old Testament that when the new covenant comes, God will be calling all people in a, in a more uh, broad way. He'll be calling people from all over the world. Nations shall come, Isaiah 63 says. Isaiah 60 verse 3 says, Nations shall come to your light. Micah 5, 4, He shall stand as a shepherd of his flock. And it goes on down and say, he, His name will be great just in Israel. No, to the ends of the earth His name will be great. So even in the Old Testament, we get this hint that this shift is going to take place. This shift is coming, this happening, this new covenant is going to happen. Again, we think about what Jesus said to the Samaritan woman. So Matthew is teaching his Jewish audience that the Messiah, though of Jewish heritage, though he would come from out of that Jewish system, the God-ordained Jewish system, he would be known and worshipped throughout the whole earth. The worship of Yahweh would be no longer be like Solomon and the Queen of Sheba, come and see. It would be, no, go and tell, as Matthew would say at the end of his book, go to all the nations, calling people to salvation. Matthew wants to show God's passion for all nations. So this story of these foreigners worshiping Christ is vital for his message. That the old covenant is giving way to the new covenant. So right here at the beginning, he's establishing these majestic magoi, these leaders coming from afar into Jerusalem, not to become Jewish, but simply to worship the Messiah. The nation of Israel, the Jewish established, these things have been corrupted and has given way to Gentile converts to Jesus. This is a major point for Matthew. It's a point for us today, isn't it? It always amazes me. I, I think about this. We live in one of the furthest places from Israel, if not the furthest populated place from Israel. It's literally on the other side of the earth, and here we are, worshiping Christ. And look at all the different colors in this room, all the different backgrounds and cultures. And what we preach is not become a Jew. What we preach is worship Christ. Worship Christ the Lord. Let's come and adore Him. Matthew 13, we studied this when Jesus gave the parables, didn't we? The kingdom of heaven, He says in uh, the parable of the uh, tree, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field, the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air can come and make nests in its branches. For a Jewish audience, they would look back to some of the prophecies and realize that tree is a representation of all the nations coming, all these different birds, all these different kinds coming in and making their home. What a great picture of the kingdom. All of our different cultures, all of our different backgrounds, all of our different nationalities coming, even, even still being in our na nation, coming and worshiping Christ the Lord. Verse 33, he told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was leaven. This is the, the spread of the gospel, the spread of the worship of Christ throughout the whole earth. Starting very small there in Israel and spreading throughout. All right, one more question I want to answer about the Magi, and it's the most practical, it's the most applicational, and we'll be finished. Third question, how did the Magi worship? How did they worship Jesus? Four things. I didn't put this in the note. They're 
four things, so listen carefully. And folks, this is, this is the response, right? This is the whole purpose that Matthew put this in here. How do you answer the advent? How do you respond to the truth of Christ born? Really, it's the point of His gospel. So we need to look at these magi. We need to watch and learn. It's the whole point of this chapter, whole point of the gospel. How did the magi answer the advent? First of all, they rejoiced. They rejoiced. This points us to the fact that Jesus is worthy of our emotional response. Verse 10, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. I love this verse. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. I suppose it could have just said they rejoiced, or even they rejoiced exceedingly. No, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. I I guess Matthew learned that they didn't just say, oh, that's great, or, oh, let's worship. No, they went crazy. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They, They learned the star had reappeared. We can go and worship the Messiah, and they were thrilled. They get to see the king. And they emote, they exuberantly emote, they enthusiastically rejoice. I have to confess, so many times when I think of Jesus, it's a passing thought. There's no joy. There's no joy in my heart. It's a matter of business. I move on unenthusiastically. I want to be someone who emotionally is involved who rejoices with great rejoicing. I know people are all wired differently. I'm not the kind of person that raises my hands in worship or dances. No one wants to see that. But a lot of us are wired in that way. Your emotions are going to be more on display. Some of us are a little more reserved. That's fine. So long as your emotions are involved in worshiping God, these people These magi were emotionally involved. This gave them great joy. Secondly, they revered, verse 11, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. One of the problems, sometimes churches put too much emphasis on the emotional side, and one of the problems with that is they forget the reverence that is due God, right? These men didn't go in and dance and act all casual. They, first thing they did is bow. They fell to their knees. Can you imagine? I mean, they probably had all kinds of gold and jewels and bizarre clothes on, and they fell to the ground. Again, not just three people. This is a group of people that fell to the ground and worshiped Christ. This is absolutely astonishing. And again, Mary and Joseph probably there in a pretty humble house. Remember your first house, your first place? Becky and I stayed in an apartment for a little while, and we ended up in government housing. Can't imagine some kings showing up, all our wealth worshiping. I think this tells us he's worthy of not just rejoicing, but that of respect and reverence. There's a submission here. We submit to you. You are our revered king. We come with a sense of honor and reverence. So the Advent, I think this is a good balance. The Advent should cause in us great emotional rejoicing, but also deep sense of reverence. Third, they gave. Verse 11, second half, then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and 
myrrh. Now, a lot of speculation has been done about these three gifts, uh, what they represent. The bottom line is we're not really sure if they represent anything. Origen, who was someone who lived some time after Christ, several hundred years, he said that gold represents royalty, frankincense represents deity, myrrh represents humanity, and maybe you've heard in some songs sometimes this comes out. But we don't see that represented here in Matthew at all. I, again, I sort of think that if Matthew wanted us to know something about what these represented, he would have said something. And there's not any kind of concrete evidence that everybody in that day would have understood what those meant. We just don't have any evidence for that. Some people may have come to things like that. Again, Origen is sort of the first one to, to say anything, and that was several hundred years later. So I really don't want to make much over what these three things represent. We do know this. They were valuable. This offering was not something of just sort of half-hearted, we'll give you our leftovers. This was, we give you some very, very expensive, valuable treasures. And that's what they're called, treasures. Again, the application is to say, Jesus is worthy of our sacrifice. He's worthy of our gifts. Again, this is not just money. This is time and energy and effort. He's, he's worthy of our very best. You know, one of the reasons that we, when people come to our church and join, we're going to have another couple families join this morning, actually. One of the reasons we try to get them involved in family groups and in ministry is because this is an act of the Christian life. It's not just optional as a Christian just to, to stand askance of all things of the church and of God and sort of just stand back and float in on Sundays. No, to worship God, we come in and we give Him everything, our time, our talents. We give Him our effort, our fellowship. You have something offered to the kingdom of God, whether you think you do or not. Following Christ costs them something. Following Christ should cost you something. Finally, the fourth thing they did is they obeyed. Verse 12, being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. We, by another way. we see that they received this special revelation, probably not the first special revelation they received, much like Joseph and Mary and Zacharias. God gave them a direct command, and they obeyed, did what God said. Of course, the true test of whether or not Christ has changed you, is not looking back and seeing if your name was on a list or if you made some decision or if you got emotional about Jesus one day. It is seeing if you are repentant. Do you genuinely have faith and turn from your sin and hate your sin and obey God? Do you worship Jesus with obedience? If you study Philippians or the Psalms or 1 John or whatever part of the Bible, you find that your deepest desire is to obey the deepest desire that you have is, is to do what it says, to believe what it says. And this should give you the greatest confidence in your salvation. Your greatest assurance is going to come through that desire to obey. Are you perfect? No, not yet. Are you immune to carnal desires? No, not yet. But your greatest joy and your greatest desire is to know Him, to love Him, and to obey Him. So in the end, as we apply this wonderful passage of the Magi to our hearts, you have to decide. Is my life about myself, about self-gratification, or is it about worship? Do I worship the Savior? That's my prayer today, that we would worship Jesus, we would worship Him with our emotions, our bodies, our treasures, our obedience, 
If you've not seen Christ for who He really is, if you've never truly believed that, maybe intellectually you've come along, but if you have not yet truly given your life to Christ, followed Him, believed in Him, I would call upon you to do that today. Look to Christ, believe Him, repent of your sin, and short, worship Him. Let's pray. We do worship You, Christ our Lord. We pray that You would bless us in our efforts to do just this, to worship You. Lord, may these words have their effect in our hearts. And Lord, the, the great news is if they are having an effect in our hearts, and Lord, it gives us a great assurance of our own salvation that You've called us into Your wonderful light. Lord, as we go this week and worship You in our jobs and our families, as we worship You even when we reconvene on Christmas Eve and sing, we worship You with our family and our traditions. I pray, Lord, that You would be the sole focus of our worship, that we'd love You with all that we are. Thank You for this time, Lord. May Your Spirit use the Word read and preached to change our hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.